welcome to another of our Glasgow Film Festival special podcasts. And today I am joined by former affairs writer and photographer David Pratt. Hello, David. Good afternoon. And uh, we're here to talk about your film, um, Pictures from Afghanistan, directed by Robbie Fraser. We'll talk about, about that in a minute. But what can you tell us about the Pictures from Afghanistan? Well, I mean, it, it's kind of uh, genesis, its origin is basically um, looking at my work in Afghanistan over the past 40 years. I've spent 40 years covering uh, conflict in Afghanistan. It is that long. It's since incredible. It's, been, it's yeah. incredible. As a matter of fact, um, Christmas there, that's 40 years, Boxing Day 1979 when the Soviets went in. Staggering length of time. So the, the film is a kind of, I was going to use the word romp, but it's hardly that. Um, it's a kind of shuffled through, shall we say, um, that entire period from when I first encountered the country back in the early 80s after the Soviet uh, um, intervention right through to the present day. And it, it, it's, a, it's a reflective piece and it allows me to return to the country to places where some of the more memorable of my individual pictures, photographs were taken. I mean, the original plan was actually to do an hour-long documentary looking back at the kind of 40 years of my work generally. But, right, but that have been everywhere. Well, that was part of the problem. I think we would have been box-ticking, you know, in terms of, you know, here's pictures from, some pictures from Haiti, here's some mm. pictures from Iraq or Syria or whatever. And in the end, it was too much. And, and Robbie, as a good director he is, realised that this needed to be distilled down into a kind of hour-long on, on Afghanistan. And it's also a country that actually that matters enormously to me. That's what the film's about. Right, okay. It's a, a place that got right into my DNA very early on, you know. Good. Could you say a bit more about that? What was it about it that really you felt was... Well, I mean, it was, it was... I mean, apart from the fact that it was, I suppose, my first proper foreign assignment, my, my, my assignment, not that I had an assignment, my first foreign foray prior to that was just after the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua which right. was 1979 as well mm-hmm. 79 was an interesting year <laughs> the Iranian revolution, the Soviets invading Afghanistan and Nicaragua, Sandinista revolution and I went post just immediately post the revolution there but that was a kind of self-propelled self um, kind of finance thing, really just testing the ground but while uh, I was in country, I was actually in hospital in Nicaragua, I was suffering from malaria and amoebic dysentery and I found a copy uh, sometime later of um, yeah, Steve McCurry, the Magnum photographer's famous right. picture of the Afghan girl in the front of National Geographic. Oh, yes, People yes. might remember these very piercing eyes or whatever. Absolutely. And, you know, I thought Afghanistan was interesting for me. And um, when I eventually got there, it was just one of these places, the mountains, the people, the, hosp- the incredible hospitality. Yeah. I and mean, Afghans are renowned for their hospitality. And it gets into your, your system very quickly. People say you either love Afghanistan or you absolutely loathe it. You know, I tend to be in the former category. Because, um, if my memory serves me correct, when the Soviets went in and uh, the regime changed, it really went from being one sort of country, quite a westernised place, to being... No, that's right. I mean, what people don't realise is that, you know, you know, it was part of the old hippie trail. You yeah. know, people would, would travel in these kind of trans-Asian overland routes from Britain and Europe, you know, heading towards India and places like that. And they would transit through Afghanistan, yeah. the famous Chicken Street in Kabul, you know, where mm. I think people would buy various odds and sods, including certain substances as well as sort of <laughs> kaftans and Afghan coats and things yeah. like that. It was all part of that intrigue at that time. And so it was a very Western, very 
accessible kind of place. And then obviously uh, with the communist government there and the Soviets intervening in order to prop that up. And, you know, as I say in the film itself, if there's one thing you have to understand about Afghans is that they don't like foreigners in their country occupying the country. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that goes back decades. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, the Anglo-Afghan wars in the 1840s, the Soviets, the Americans and Brits now. So there's one lesson we should learn from that. It's uh, Afghans don't like people occupying their country. So this um, project, it's been a book and an exhibition as well. Was it always going to be a film? Well, it's, it's, not, it's not a book. The book, actually, which is just nearing completion now, is a memoir, which right. is, is, is looking... which. It's a, it's, a, it's a different beast in okay, a way okay. because the book actually kind of floats in and out of the, the subtitle to the book I'm not going to give you the title right yeah. but the subtitle of the book is uh, a memoir of boyhood and battlefield so it floats in and out of my boyhood ah, along with um, the sort of contemporary more contemporary sort of assignments and places that I've visited as a professional journalist um, and you know that kind of things that influence me the kind of boy's own kind of comics that yeah. I read the books the movies you know I grew, grew up in the kind of height of the Cold War. So that these were all contributing factors in order in terms of how it shaped me in that way. So the book kind of drifts in and out of, of, of boyhood and, and the current sort of assignments over the last forty years. Okay, and so and that was what the exhibition came from then? That pretty much the exhibition is actually you know, it runs from I think the earliest picture in it's from what eighty two, the most recent is from Syria a year or so ago. Right. So that pretty much encapsulates the sort of forty odd years, but also geographically captures that as well because the pictures they range from Central America, Middle East, Africa, whatever. Yeah. Whereas the film Pictures from Afghanistan, as the title says, is almost exclusively devoted to Afghanistan. And what was the process then in, in making the film? How did it begin? Did you take your pictures to Robbie? Or no, on the contrary, it was one of these strange kind of, you know, usually in a pub. That's where these, that's where <laughs> these things the usually happen, you know. So it was actually through um, a kind of mutual friend, Jed Fitzsimmons, who runs a film distribution um, company here. Uh, and they were involved with uh, Ne Passaran, oh, uh, yes. the film Ne Passaran. And Jed actually, when talking to Jed, he said, look, I've got to introduce you to a friend of mine, Robbie. Um, Robbie Fraser, who by the way is working on a film, Robbie's last film, called Final Ascent, which is about Hamish McInnes, yes. and I have a big passion, not so much these days as you can probably gather looking at me, but I used to do an awful lot of serious mountaineering right, and climbing, okay. so on that basis alone I was quite keen to meet Robbie to find out about Final Ascent, and in the course of that conversation, he became more and more interested in the sort of 40 years that I've spent covering front lines, and it just kind of basically mushroomed from there. Yeah. And we got talking about it, and uh, it went through various uh, phases. Because I'm presuming you have got attics. Well, the, the, the archive, the archive is, is big. Yeah. Um, there's maybe 15, I don't know, maybe 20,000. I haven't fully, but certainly at least 15,000 images in the archive. But as I keep saying to people, I haven't just shot over the years, I haven't just shot stills. Mm. I went through various periods where I was actually shooting video. Um, indeed, I ran along with a, a friend of mine and colleague, Patrick Bart, many years ago. We ran a, a small production company called Frontier Africa, which specialised in, how do I put this, filming in parts of Africa where some of the, the big news organisations feared to tread a little right. bit. So we kind of, we're like the kind of, um, you know, the kind of SES of, of, of filmmaking <laughs> in Africa. So we would go in and sort of, you know, into a lot of these really troubled places. For example, I mean, Lauren Nakunda, the, 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 the warlord, um, he's actually... Um, 
Rwandan, but you right. know he was operational in, in Congo, and we got the first televised interview with Nakunda a few years back when he was moving on the city of, of Goma by walking into the the Virunga National Park, which is it sounds like a park, but it's not. It's basically the jungle in Congo, right, okay. uh, where the, the famous gorillas, that's with a no, not with a yes, U, yes. inhabit as well. And we actually walked in for days and got the interview with them. So we we kind of specialised in that sort of stuff. So you know, I was shooting a lot of video over the years in Iraq and Haiti. There there are patches actually in my career where I literally never, virtually never lifted a stills camera. I was right, just okay. simply writing and shooting video. And some of that archival footage makes its way into pictures from Afghanistan as well. And uh, are you somehow drawn to these places? Because these are, as you say, not many other people are willing to go. Is that part of the appeal? It's, it's part of the appeal. I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, hence the book, you know, Boyhood's you know, memoir of Boyhood and Battlefield. I think I was always drawn to things military. I, I didn't exactly grow up in a military family. My father did his national service. Mm-hmm. I had uncles in the Navy or in the Merchant Navy or whatever. And I was it was filled with these kind of boyhood tales of adventure and daring do and all that. It was a very kind of quite macho kind of house yeah, in yeah, that yeah. way. And you had uncles in the TA and the army and stuff. So I kind of grew up with that. It was predicted that I would actually go into the forces. I was a, a soldier destined in waiting, in waiting and not a, an art student in waiting at <laughs> Glasgow School of Art, couldn't be further from the truth. So I suppose in many ways it's come full circle. So there's this fusion of, of um, you know, the, the, the creative side, if you like, and that kind of interest in things and things militaristic. But yeah, I've always been, I've always been intrigued in pushing the, pushing the envelope a little bit. Um, physically, I mean, hence my interest in, in mountaineering mm-hmm. years ago, um, rather kind of risky environments and stuff like that. I think the main thing is that working in hostile environments, as we call them within the trade, is the ultimate kind of journalistic challenge. I mean, you have to be pretty resourceful and, you know, really think on your feet, yeah. as well as the kind of physical difficulties as and well. And I guess doing it for 14 years, you wouldn't be doing it for that length of time. Well, you know, I'm, I, I don't, as I've said before, I don't run as fast as I used to, you know. I mean, <laughs> as I said also, you know, it's like you're putting your socks on in the morning, you start to groan a bit. Yes, it's, it's, maybe, well. it's, it's maybe time to stop ducking and diving in the world's front lines. But, I, you know, I, you know I, I wouldn't say I've been lucky. I've been quite calculating. I've had a lot of close calls over the years. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of, when I look back on it now, I think I've been incredibly fortunate, actually. I mean, I've lost friends. Mm. I've had friends wounded, um, you know, been less fortunate than I have. And I think the business now is probably arguably more dangerous now, right. today, than it's ever been in, in, in recent decades, you know. For what reasons? Well, I think you know, war warfare has become more what we call asymmetrical. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not conventional armies on either sure. side. With the rise of Islamist and and other types of of terrorism in that way, the, the journalist has become collateral. They've become kind of um, you know tools, if you like, components, pawns in, in mm-hmm. the game. Um, we've seen the number of kidnappings, not just of civilians and aid workers, but journalists by ISIS. Um, so you become political collateral as well as actually literally financial collateral yeah, in that yeah. way. And there are no conventions, there are no rules. I'm not suggesting war ever had any rules, but there was at least some degree of conventions for the press. Yes. And they don't exist anymore. Okay, that's really interesting. And um, you mentioned there that you were at art school, doing photography at art school. No, no, I did bizarre stuff. 
I actually, uh, the department I went through was actually called Murals and Stained Glass. It was, to, 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 if you understand the politics of Glasgow School of Art and the, and the kind <laughs> of late, late, late 70s, early 80s, you know, this is long before the current current <laughs> right. round of politics. It was, you know, the, if you wanted to do painting, you went in the painting department, which produced a lot of mm, yeah. very fantastic painters. And most of my peers, actually, at Glasgow School of Art were people like Peter House and like Ken Curry, Adrian Vishnevsky, Stephen Campbell, the late Stephen Campbell. These were all my, my buddies, right. frankly in art school but most of them with per- perhaps the exception of, of, of Stephen opted for the painting department I found Glasgow School of Art's painting department a little bit stayed it was right. very figuratively driven and I was more interested in doing you know, work that was shall we say more minimalist abstract or whatever and the murals department was a kind of mixed media department. A lot of my work was sculptural as well. So it now became environmental art, of course, mm-hmm. and it's one, you know, the Turner Bex Prize winners and all that have come through it. So it was more of a kind of experimental breeding ground in a way. But primarily it was painting, painting and sculpture that I did, not photography. Right. The Fine Art School of Photography didn't exist at GSA. Ah, at that time. okay. So how did you go? Because we said you got your interest, how did you get to. I think, it's po- I think politics is a simple answer right, okay. because, um, you know, I, I was always very actively engaged in politics as a student, as a, as a, a young guy, so very left of centre, shall yeah. we say, and, you know, involved with the minor strike, the March for Jobs in 83, all these, these things, which I, I photographed as well, actually, mm-hmm. as a kind of diarist in 1983, Thatcher's last term in office. And, um, for, a, for a company, would you well, I, mean, I, I did a lot of work, you know, the STUC at that time yeah. and, and various others, and it was really, it was, it was a peculiar kind of fusion. I began to look at, I found painting and, and, and that fine art element too contemplative for myself so the documentary appeal of stills photography really began to you know sing out to me and it was a natural kind of fusion of politics and making images in that way photography was the natural tool but I mean I'd always use the camera in art school you know you you did elements of that within your course and whatever um, as a means to to an ends uh, that was slightly different but I, 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 the fusion really became quite obvious, and I think with the, the Sandinista trip, the, the, the Nicaragua thing at that time, that was it. That, that was the confirmation for me that this was the way forward. So, interesting, it sounds like there's a real um, line between just shooting what's going on because, you know, there's things going on around you and it's necessary, and also getting what you would call artistically. You know, yeah, quality. Absolutely, insurance. absolutely. I mean, I've never, I've been very fortunate insofar as that I've, you know, I've made my living both as a photographer and writer, which is another thing, you know, yeah. some people don't actually, until the exhibition recently, a lot of people didn't realise that I actually was a photojournalist and that my first love was photography. Um, again, it was one of these toss ups before I went to art school. Should I go to university, do English with a view to going into as a writer in journalism, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, you know, I've always written as well. Um, I, I think the the this idea of so I never really went out initially with, with a view of making kind of editorial photography. I didn't actually go out with the intention of shooting pictures for newspapers. I tended to view it more as a documentary, a self-documentary project. Mm-hmm. So when I first went to Afghanistan, it was really just let's see what I could get. Let's let's make the pictures I want to make. But the fact was that in Afghanistan at that early point in time, there were so few photographers going over the border. Because you've got right. to remember, you had to go in illegally yeah. um, from Pakistan, hike through the Hindu Kush mountains, often for months at a time. And this was pre-digital. Yes. You know, so it was all rolls of film and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So And then bring this stuff out. So 
the, the fact that you were bringing this stuff out was automatically attractive to a lot of uh, a lot of newspapers because there were so few journalists yeah, doing it. Yeah, right. So they, they tend to reach out and grab it. But it, it gave you more leverage because you could, the latitude to be able to shoot the kinds of pictures you wanted to shoot. You know? In terms of, uh, you said there was no digital, how has the world changed oh, practically over the years? Goodness me, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny when I'm talking to photography students or journalism students about the fact that mobile phones didn't exist when I first went yeah, into yeah. Afghanistan, which is not that long ago no, when you think about no, no. it. Um, you know, or that there was no digital per se, um, you know, certainly digital photography. It was rolls, I mean, I took two, three hundred rolls of film in a, in a backpack over the, the Hindu Kush. This is all heavy, heavy equipment. Well, you shoot the stuff, you have to go in as light as you can, because sometimes the marches would would last for weeks, yeah. you know, and daily. You know, I mean, some of the roughest terrain in the world. But then again, I was actually in my 20s and a lot fitter. And you were living in caves, I mean, at that time, because the, the Soviets had air superiority, so you had to literally move by night um, and, and hole up by day, you know. And so getting the stuff out, you couldn't just sort of set up your laptop, as you've got in front of you right now, a laptop, yeah. and a little mobile phone or something, and a satellite phone, and ping it back to a desk in, in, in Glasgow or in London or whatever. Yeah. You know, it had to be virtually taken out by runner. It was like something out of a previous century, you know. <laughs> so, so guys would take the film by, and I was always very nervous about that. So I tended to hang on to it, because it, I didn't feel it was about news anyway. It was more, as I say, a documentary project, and you could bring out... 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 rolls of film and get back, get them processed and then start to, to pitch the pictures out from there. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'm thinking of is how your family reacted to you being in these situations. Because well, I mean, that, that, again, no mobile phones, you can't say I am. Well, that, 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 I was going to say that they're, they're interconnected because when you, when you went over the border into Afghanistan in those days, that was it. Yeah. There was no messages coming out. Um, I think my, my, my mother and father were then alive. I think they were blissfully unaware of what I was doing. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the fact that I'd spent years, you know, and I was climbing since I was like, you know, 12, 13, literally hitchhiking when I was 13. I mean, inconceivable for some people today, yeah. but 13 years old with a bike, going up to Glencoe for a weekend, sleeping under bridges and going up the buckle. You know, my parents were used to these kind of prolonged absences with no word of where I was, you know. <laughs> so they, away, where is he? Where is he? Well, he's in, he's in a cave in Afghanistan somewhere at that time. So that, it, was, it was not, wasn't unusual when I'd pop up for about two months later and say, well, where have you been, you know? I mean, but to be serious, I mean, if anything had happened, yeah. um, you know, they, they might never have found out. Um, you know, I know, for example, Andy Skripkoyak, who's a freelance cameraman who was murdered in Afghanistan by one particular faction. And Andy's, Andy's body was, was um, buried in Afghanistan. He was murdered there and dumped in a... You know, so things like that would happen. You, you wouldn't hear for months on end and, and getting stuff out. And, of course, the other thing was that crossing the border was illegal. Yeah. If the Soviets caught you at that time, they actually at one point made a declaration that they would treat any journalists entering Afghanistan with the Mujahideen guerrillas as spies. And if you were caught, you would, you would go to prison. Pulicharki prison in, in near Kabul is not a place you want to spend no. a day, let alone uh, you know, that sounded like incoming there for a minute, so it was like, it was like an outgoing morsel, I, I, I can assure listeners that it is not a bottle of champagne being opened or indeed a mortar being fired afterwards, afterwards, <laughs> afterwards yes we'll get around to that um, so the, the, what's been the reaction to the film? because it's been 
showing already. And, uh, it's, well, it's not yet. The screen, oh. the screen, it, there's only a few people have seen the screener. Right, okay. Um, it's the the premiere. Obviously, goes out on the first of March first as of part March, of the yeah. Glasgow Film Festival. Um, so it'll be curious to yeah. see what the response is. So who is. has seen it? Obviously yourself, Robbie. A, a selection of people, people re- reviewing it. Obviously the Glasgow Film Festival itself, because they had to make the selection, yes. which I think was quite something, because the film was primarily made for uh, by Robbie's production company for BBC Scotland. Mm-hmm. They help with Creative Scotland and whatever, and that those kind of funding sources. And it was an hour-long documentary for television, which tends not to get... Yeah. that many places in a film festival where they're an hour and a half long so the fact that the GFF saw the film and chose to select it to show it in the film festival was great yeah. so what will be great on March the 1st is that very 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 few people in the audience will, have actually, will have actually seen it so I'll be curious to see the, the reaction to it you know, and, and the fact that we're having the, a, a Q&A with Alan Little Yes. Um, afterwards, and you know, Alan's obviously incredibly knowledgeable about that part of the world as well, so it should be fun. Um, and have you lined up for any other film festivals, or is this the? I mean, that's up to Robbie. I mean, yeah. Robbie will know how that moves. What what we will be doing, and I've been given the green light for that, is is the exhibition that I had in Glasgow, yeah. Sogo Arts. Um, moves on. It's going to the International School in Geneva later in the year. There's talk of it possibly, and it's most likely going to be in Summerhall in Edinburgh, uh, just prior to the festival. And I think what Robbie's agreed to is that we can actually show the film, should these places wish that, alongside the exhibition. So if they have an auditorium as they do in the Art Centre in in the International School in Geneva, they can show the film alongside it. But I dare say it will probably go out to to other sources. I mean, it has to be obviously run on the BBC, because after the screening, the export call is the broadcast on on BBC Scotland, which again we don't have a a date for as of yet, but I wouldn't imagine it's too far off. Yeah. And you, you mentioned right at the beginning, you know, that this is only just one country that you visited. Yeah. Is there a plan to do maybe something similar? We would love that. Uh, Robbie and I have discussed it, um, whether we can actually... We certainly have the material for it. Yeah. Um, there's no question about that. There's loads and loads of archival material. There's certainly loads of stills material. And I think if we did it, what we would want to do... I mean, there is a template there with pictures from Afghanistan. So it could be pictures from Congo or pictures from Syria or whatever. But Robbie's very keen, as as with pictures in Af- from Afghanistan, is that there is a direct personal connection. It's not just about me returning to a place that I've been in before um, with the images that I took there, although that's part of the, mm-hmm. the format. It's what's maybe a particular incident, a particular um, occurrence or, or, or event or whatever, or, or, or something that impacted me personally while I was there becomes a kind of common thread, if you like, in each yeah. of these episodes, should they be made. We're still at the, the talking stage about sure. that, but the material is certainly there for it. And uh, in terms of the, the job itself, how does it work? Are you sitting there waiting for the next conflict? Well, I mean, I, as I keep saying to people, I mean, I'm freelance, and I have been, yeah. people, because they see my byline in the Herald, or the, the, yeah. the National, or the, the Sunday National, or whatever, um, you tend to think that, and you know, I'm billed as a kind of foreign editor, which is partly true because I was staff foreign editor there, although I was never stuck at the desk. As John Le Carre said, a, a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. Yes. You know, <laughs> and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you get stuck behind a desk, it can be pretty tricky. So I've always been able to roam about, but I have been freelance for going on more than four years now. Right. Um, 
and I like to remind people of that because if they do read stuff in the paper, it's I I, I, I had to get out there and get that material myself. Yeah, you know, of course. there is there is no financial support from from newspapers anymore in that way, unless I get a, a, an assignment in advance, which is very very rare. Right. Certainly, certainly here in Scotland, that's virtually non-existent right now. And it comes as a big shock whenever I do talks or whatever, and you say to people, actually, I quite often pay my own way to a war. They kind of glaze over, you know, the idea that a you would go to a war zone. Yes. Individually, be pay your own good money to go there and, and risk your life effectively yeah. is a bit baffling for them with no guarantee of a financial return. Um, that is something that a lot of people wrestle with. Frankly, I wrestle with it yeah. as well in more ways than one. It's almost the ultimate example of the freelance. Uh, but, society but, but, now is that that's what you have to do. It, it right? is what you have to do, yeah. and you know it's one of the sad things that I don't think we invest in in, in newspapers here. I and mean, if you look at something like the New York Times, for yeah. example, they've bucked the trend. The New York Times is making money. If, you, if it's only about making money, yeah. then you know the New York Times invests in the journalism. The quality of the journalism rises. People buy the newspaper. Everybody's in a win-win situation. Yes. There. Yeah. Now, whether you agree politically or not, with the New York Times and various papers that yeah. do that. It, for journalism, it's good. We don't have that here. No. And do you think there's any chance of that changing in the near future? Because I like to think there, you know, that there are maybe going to be places forward where you suggest long-form articles that people are, you know, are sick of just the short, sharp, yeah. short. People want to get in depth, good quality journalism. You would hope that there would always be. Well, the, the, these there are those, these platforms exist right now, and I, and I do work like that for, for people, it's, you know, from from outfits as far abroad as the National, not to be confused with the National in Scotland, yeah. the National in Abu in in in, um, in Dubai, for example, yeah. which is the English language Arab newspaper there. Other outlets that I that I that I work through, where you've you've got greater greater rain really in terms of the length and, and and stuff like that. And frankly, they pay you properly. They pay you a, a rate for the job, which is often not the case here in in, in Scotland or in the UK anymore. Yeah. Um, those platforms exist. I think they will increase. Um, that's to the benefit of journalism. Yeah. But people have to understand that you have to pay for journalism. Yes. You get, if you get a plumber in, you know the plumber expects to get paid. You know yeah. you, we can't just be reading journalism and not paying for good writing or good photojournalism. And you know those, as I mentioned, the New York Times, and that is, is a great example of where the quality has been maintained. And they, and they allow themselves to get beneath the surface. They don't just react to the news. They analyse the news. They go off diary, if you like, and, yeah. and do reportage projects that are much, much more in-depth. I think that's what people are looking for. Now, they get their snap news on, on television or radio yeah. or online or whatever like that. They're looking for the stuff behind the story, that's right. and that's what really matters. They're looking for experts, I think, in their fields. And and, 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 and not just an analysis, because I'm a big, big, big believer in the eyewitness thing. I yeah. think we, we, we forfeit that at our peril, really, I think, in journalism. To, to some extent, and I see this as a columnist and an analyst, yeah. there are too many columnists and too many analysts and not enough reporters getting their hands dirty and yeah. going out to places and actually writing with what they see and photographing what they see. That's, that's probably my key passion, is that journalism needs reporting again, right. not just analysis and, yeah. and columns. Not just commentary, but actually... Absolutely. Well... What a fantastic place to leave it. Uh, thank you very much, David, for talking to us. My pleasure. And uh, pictures from Afghanistan, premieres on the 1st of March. 1st of March at the GFT, so 1.15 in the afternoon. So plenty of time for people to recover from the hangover the night before, before they get there. Absolutely. Get yourself <laughs> along there. And we'll be back soon to talk to someone else, like the Glasgow Film Festival. Cheers. Mm-hmm.